Welcome to Only Tech Will Tell, the podcast where we give you an understanding of the full scope of today's most significant innovations and their implications for the future. Let's get started. All right, welcome back to Only Tech Will Tell. On this episode, we're going to be talking about food. Hey, it's, it's good to be back, Evan. It's been a little while since our last episode. Again, feel like I say it every time, but nice to be back. Pumped about this topic. Uh, yeah, food is great. <laughs> yes, food is great. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the, the future of food um, and, and why food is going to have to change moving into the future. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a few different reasons. And as I was doing research for this topic, I think the, the things that I think about, the reasons why I think food production and consumption is going to have to change, uh, I've, I've kind of broken that down into three different categories. For me, it's all about climate, health, and population. So can we produce food more sustainably in a way that's good for the environment? Can we produce food and consume food in a way that also improves human health? And how are we going to feed a continuously growing population? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, Evan, when, when you've put forward the idea for a food podcast, um, it sounded it sounded kind of boring to me. But uh, <laughs> once I got into doing some research, I got kind of excited about it. Because here's the thing. I, I'm pretty content with my food consumption. It's very easy for me to go to the grocery store and buy my foods. I have access to food from all over the world. It's 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 a piece of cake, pun intended. And truthfully, you know, food is not really something I think about. the The production of my food is not something that crosses my mind. As long as it's at my local Meyer or Kroger or whatever, I'm I'm cool with that. But the reality is, first of all, there is a lot of technology that is being employed in the production of food that will make it more sustainable and and more healthy. And and I really appreciate the way that you broke that down because because this is this is a very important topic, um, and I think it's it's helpful to kind of take a look behind the curtain every once in a while um, because at a certain point the the ways that we produce food right now will become unsustainable and it will not be as as easy for us to to get food. Yeah, yeah. So kind of unpacking this a little bit, here's an interesting stat: if everybody in the world right now ate like the average American, we would already be about 30-ish percent short in terms of food production. So if everybody ate like the average USA citizen, we wouldn't be able to produce enough food for people. And moving into the future, we our population, I think by 2050, is projected to reach about 10 billion. Yeah. Last time I checked, it was 7.62 billion. I actually checked yesterday, so that should be fairly <laughs> should current. Be pretty accurate. <laughs> so there's going to have to be this shift in the way that we produce food for this growing population. Um, so we're going to have to produce more food. We need dietary changes, I believe. I mean, it comes as no surprise to everybody that there is a huge obesity epidemic, especially in the United States. Um, And I'll get into the reasons for that in just a little bit. But if we can produce food in a way that also encourages dietary changes or the other way around, create dietary changes first Hmm. in the name of health that drives a market for Hmm. different, more sustainable food productions, I think that that's a direction of the future. And of course, we need to produce these foods in ways... um, with lower environmental impact. Yeah. So getting into this a little more deeply, I, you know, we're, we're both kind of coming at this, I think from 
sort of a medical standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. We've both been through medical school. Well, you have been through medical school. I've got four months left. You're but, almost there. Almost uh, there. <laughs> you know, I, I think that th- this, this food area is an area of passion for me because it's kind of at the intersection of human health and planetary health, right? So yeah. I feel like a lot of the health problems are due to overabundance, right? So mm-hmm. overabundance of food intake, namely carbohydrates. So if you think about some of the top killers in the United States, we've got diabetes. Diabetes increases your risk of vascular disease. So stroke, heart attacks, those are big major, you know, major causes of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. And really a lot of that is driven by overabundance of carbohydrates. So we take in these carbohydrates over time, you get less insulin responsive or you get insulin resistant, I should say. And then you've got kind of chronically elevated levels of blood sugar. And that chronically elevated level of blood sugar damages your blood vessels. And so to change this, I think we really need to have a shift in the mindset of why we eat. Hmm. I think a lot of people go through life right now and it's like a lot of people think, okay, I'm hungry. I need to stuff food down my face so that I don't feel hungry anymore. Right. But really, what's the purpose of eating? The purpose of eating is to provide nutrition to our bodies, to, to, to give our body the chemicals needed to go through all these chemical reactions that it goes through to provide fuel so that our bodies can keep going, our brains can keep going, so that we can continue to live. So rather than eating because I'm hungry, I think we need to eat to fuel ourselves. And when you start to do that, you say, okay, well, what do we need to eat to fuel ourselves? And this is kind of how I approached this topic today of how are we going to produce the things that we actually need to eat. And so basically breaking it down into macronutrients and then micronutrients, we've got proteins, lipids, carbohydrates, and then vitamins and minerals, right? The micronutrients. And so that's what we need to focus on if we're getting to the core of the issue. We, we need to focus on, okay, how are we going to produce in a sustainable way that doesn't damage the planet? How are we going to produce proteins? How are we going to produce lipids? How are we going to produce carbohydrates? And make sure that we get these necessary vitamins and minerals. And as it turns out, you know, I, I don't think we're going to need to worry about carbohydrates. You know, I think that yeah, we've, we've got we're already, <laughs> yes, exactly. We've got plenty of carbohydrates and the things that we need to worry about a little bit more and the things that are inherently more damaging to the environment to produce are proteins. Now, in a lot of cases, we get our lipids, we get enough lipids, I should say, from eating sources of protein, things like animal fat, things like omega-3 fatty acids from fish, you know, sunflower seeds have oils in them, those sorts of things. All of those fats and oils are sources of lipids. And I won't get into the nutrition of lipids, but I, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is that as I was doing research in all of these different kind of micronutrient categories and how we're going to produce them, what I came to was that really the main thing we need to worry about is producing proteins. How are we going to produce enough proteins to feed humanity in a sustainable way that's good for the environment. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think I think you've very helpfully highlighted some of the like societal trends that we're noticing here in in Western countries, where the, the problem is overabundance rather than lack of abundance of things. You you mentioned uh, carbohydrates and even the way that we produce our proteins. I, I think you have again helpfully pointed out that proteins are the hard part here. How are we going to make um, meat and protein? In, in a way that is environmentally sustainable and healthy. So 
I'd also like to turn our attention to the East. If we if we look at China over the last 50 to 60 years, um, there's been a huge economic boom and and a shift in their diet from from a more traditional Eastern diet to one that kind of mirrors the the Western diet. And so there have been some very interesting changes um, that I think we can we can look to there that that'll be helpful as we kind of think about this um, this whole topic of um, both production and consumption of food. So in in the 1970s. Um, prior to this economic boom in China, about 3% of, of the calories consumed in the average Chinese diet uh, came from meat. As we approach 2010-ish, about 30% of the, the calories came from meat. So again, becoming a little bit more closely uh, mirroring the, the Western diet. And over that period of time, there was also a very clear trend that showed there were increasing um, cardiovascular events in in the Chinese population as mm. as we're increasing the amount of uh, uh, as they're increasing the amount of meat that they're um, eating their heart their rates of heart disease are, are going up um, right so and and as you have this rapid growth of the middle class you have more and more people who are able to afford to eat meat right so th- this this data found to be interesting back in the, the 1960s or so the um, the Lifetime consumption, the, the cost of lifetime consumption of food uh, for the average Chinese person was about 16000 per um, per person, right? For for the child born in 2009, the lifetime consumption is expected to be over 600000 Wow. So, and and as, as that increase, uh, you know, continues, uh, that is going to place increasing burden on the planet. So, Evan, you mentioned early on that if everyone in the world ate like Americans did, we would already not have enough um, food to, to feed everyone. We wouldn't have enough, have enough land. Our, our, our farming efficiency is just not there. there. There are a bunch of challenges that come with producing protein in an inefficient way, as we do now, by just growing you know, cows, et cetera, and, and then harvesting uh, meat from them. Per each pound of beef that is produced, you need three to four pounds of grain. And if you need three to four pounds of grain, you're going to require far more water. Water is something that we'll we'll address in the future. To summarize all of that, we need to think about ways to produce protein in an increasingly um, affluent world. Um, How do we produce protein in a way that is sustainable and good for our health. We've seen uh, in China over these last couple of decades, and we've seen here in the United States, that if we don't think about this stuff, there's gonna be all kinds of health and sustainability um, factors that, that come into play that are, that are negative. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and interestingly, we will need to produce more calories in the next 50 years than we have in the past 10,000 years huh. in order to feed humanity. So- That's pretty wild. There's this, <laughs> yeah, isn't that a wild stat? Yeah. So, there is this definite need to increase food production. Um, but of course, we've got to do this in a way that's sustainable. We've, we can't ruin the planet in the process of feeding humanity. And, and the key word here is one of my favorite words, efficiency. Okay, So we need to have more yield with less resources. So you know, with less acreage, less water usage, less, less of our grain production going to feed cattle, for instance, that sort of thing. So let me, let me do a little bit of a deeper dive into what we're doing wrong. Like, what do we need to fix moving forward? And so right now, you know, Andrew brought up this point of, of beef production. It's, it's a very high cost to produce beef to raise cattle. He, he mentioned this stat that it takes three to four pounds of feed to produce one pound of beef. And of course, that's just pounds. That's not 
broken down by calorie, but I think yeah, you get the yeah. picture that it's very expensive and and kind of inefficient to produce beef. Furthermore, in the process of constantly grazing beef, uh, not beef, but cows, <laughs> future beef, I guess, cows, yeah, future beef, cows actually produce a lot of methane. So they sit there and graze all day and they're kind of belching all the time as they yeah. do this. And they release a ton of methane. And Methane is not good for the environment at all. It's, I think everyone's heard of the fact that, that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and kind of traps in the Earth's heat. Um, but methane, one molecule of methane is equivalent to 20 molecules of CO2. And wow, so in I, the, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, exactly. So the production of beef, raising cattle, is actually pretty terrible for the environment. And in fact, if you can just switch from beef to chicken, you know, or switch from beef to soy, that would be an even bigger jump, although it might be harder to get that. It's a little harder going to on a scale of, right. Yeah. <laughs> but pun intended again, <laughs> <laughs> but so you can see that the production of beef is horribly inefficient and it's really bad for the environment. And can I throw a quick stat in there as well? I, I found this to be just mind blowing that about 15% of total carbon emissions come from agriculture. And a lot of that yeah. comes from, from cows, like belching and producing, um, methane, which is just mind blowing. Yeah. You know, we're focusing a lot of our energy in the tech sector to, um, you know, other sustainable energy sources, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if we if we really want to be serious about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we have to look to agriculture and make it more efficient, and especially beef production, because uh, this is a huge um, emitter of greenhouse gases, which is pretty wild. Absolutely. And then another thing, I, I want everyone listening to this to go and look up palm oil production. So palm oil is kind of a cheap vegetable oil, cooking oil alternative that is used in a lot of things like potato chips, Doritos, all that sort of thing. And so of course, in America, at least where everyone's eating potato chips and Doritos and that sort of thing, palm oil is, there's a huge demand for palm oil. And if you look at places like Indonesia and, and people decimate in the Amazon, actually, people will completely decimate forest area in the production of palm oil. And it's really depressing to look at. And then there's a problem that we have with overfishing, right? So we've kind of reached this, in terms of getting fish from the ocean for food, we've finally reached this plateau where more and more people are fishing, but the amount of fish coming out of the ocean is not increasing as more people fish. And what that tells us is that we've kind of reached this, it's called peak fish, actually. And so we've reached this point where we are fishing the oceans to their maximum capacity. Yeah, so those are just some of the selected examples I wanted to give you of what we're doing wrong. We're inefficiently producing protein from beef. We are supporting a market like the production of palm oil with our buying habits that promotes deforestation, further compounding the effects of climate change. And then we're overfishing the oceans. We're at kind of their maximum capacity. And so moving forward, it's important to switch to forms of food, forms of protein that aren't as hard on the environment as beef. It's important to shift our dietary habits so that we're supporting a market that is not deforesting the Amazon. Yeah. And so how do we do all this? How do we fix this? And that's what we want to get into today. Some alternative food forms and then ways to change the way in which we get them. Yeah, and that, that was exactly the follow-up question I was gonna, gonna ask. How do, how do we fix this stuff? And I think it's a great summary of some of the stuff that we're doing wrong. Just to add to that briefly, it, 
this this is only going to get worse if we if we don't change um, our uh, production and consumption habits. If if the world sees a two degrees Celsius increase in temperature over the next thirty years, we're going to see yields crop yields drop by twenty to twenty five percent. Is is the stat that mm-hmm. I saw? So we got to get really aggressive about addressing uh, these problems, um, or else we're going to start having. Truthfully, I, I would expect there will be wars over um, food um, food production and you know food shortages and, and water shortages and things like that. Again, we'll we'll save water for another episode. But um, yeah, this is this is really serious stuff, and I, I think you you highlighted that well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been wars started over far lesser things than than food shortages. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that that's a stretch at all. But yeah, so how do we fix this? How do we get protein sources that are more sustainable? So let's just go through these. I've got a few different examples. So the first one I want to talk about is insects. And this one's kind of (laughs) controversial, right? I don't think anyone's going to just immediately go to the grocery store and start buying crickets for protein. You know, you see this in movies like The Matrix and Blade Runner 2049, right? Blade Runner Mm -hmm. 2049, they've got these kind of look like grub farms, I guess, protein Uh farms. And that's how Neander Wallace actually came to power is that he, yeah, he was able to kind of get people past the protein shortage with his grub farms. And in the matrix, you've got them handing out gruel for breakfast, that sort of deal. And so that's a pretty bleak future, but you know, I, I don't think everyone's going to be rushing out to the grocery store to buy crickets for their morning breakfast or anything like that, but it is a good source of protein. And a lot of cultures currently rely on it. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, my, my first thought is I, I want to try it. I mean, I, it, it always looked strangely appetizing to me when, when watching on TV, I, I might be in the minority here, but I, I do want to give this a shot and see, see if it, um, tastes as bad as it looks. I, I'm just like really intrigued by the idea. Yeah. I think insects are intriguing as a source of protein, but I think that a more realistic shift is going to be in the direction of plant protein and kind of meat alternatives or alternatively produced meats. And in that vein, there's this concept of lab grown meat that keeps coming up. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so this is certainly the one that um, has garnered the most media attention over the last few years. There there are a couple of different alternatives to to meat that have uh, been popularized in the media. The the more high tech one is the the use of stem cells that are harvested from uh, fetal cow blood and then are grown in a lab to produce up to 20,000 or more muscle fibers that then can be eaten. So so the idea here is rather than growing an entire cow and then slaughtering the cow and, and eating the beef that way, which is a huge producer of greenhouse gases, requires a lot of grain, requires a lot of water, it would be a little bit more or potentially a lot more environmentally sustainable to take a few stem cells out of fetal cow blood, grow it in the lab, make them reproduce and multiply, and then produce a patty, a beef patty from purely lab grown muscle fibers. This this started as an idea probably in the early 2000s, right around 2005-ish. There were a couple of companies that that tried to do this. One of the most popular companies and, and one of the ones that has accrued the most funding so far is Memphis Meats. So Memphis Meats was founded, I I think right around, well, they had their first idea back in 2005. They started to get more funding and became popularized in the mid 2010s, uh, which we can now talk about the 2010s as being in the past, uh, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so they had the the first production of a lab grown meatball, uh, I think in 2016. So this is all very recent stuff. Now, a couple of challenges with this lab grown meat. First of all, very expensive. 
I think back in 2013, and, and the stat that I saw was that it cost about $330,000 to produce one beef patty. That's extremely expensive, of course. However, in 2017, that very same patty costs about $11 to produce. So there's been a, and that's about a 99% reduction in cost. So we're seeing huge developments in the technology that makes this possible, but bringing it to scale is, is going to be the, the next really challenging part. All right. So when we're talking about lab grown meat, we have using stem cells to produce purely lab grown meat. The second option is essentially just using grains and plant-based stuff to produce things that taste like meat. And if you're familiar with the Impossible Burger, um, that I think is that, was that Burger King, Wendy's? Yeah, <clears throat> Burger King has a deal with Impossible Burger, and you can buy them in supermarkets. I do want to be clear, though, that Impossible Burger, I think like you're about to get into, uses plant, yes. plant-based protein. So it's not actually a lab-grown right. meat in the same way that these Memphis meats were. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that, that clarification. So we, we kind of talked about the Memphis meats, lab-grown stuff, and then there's these other ways of simulating meat that are, again, more environmentally sustainable, a little bit healthier. And these, I think, are being brought to market much more quickly because they don't require the R&D, the development of the technology behind it uh, quite as much. So I, I'm intrigued to see where all of this goes. I think there, there are a couple of barriers. We talked about cost, scalability. Some folks, I think, are even a little bit um, turned off to the idea of eating meat that was grown in a lab. And, I, um, you know, f- for me, I'm not really sure that I I can identify w- with that. Um, some other folks have moral objections uh, to extracting stem cells from fetal cow blood. So there are a number of different regulatory and societal challenges that, that might, and economic challenges, of course, to, to making this a reality. And we're probably still uh, quite a ways away from routinely producing and eating lab-grown meat, but I think in the interim, this plant-based meat alternative, I think, is going to be a really interesting uh, space to watch. Do you have any any thoughts about all that, Evan? Yeah, yeah. So what you were saying, people's objections for it for different reasons. I think I was watching some interviews with people, and they were saying, oh, that's unnatural, and I think they just kind of object to anything grown in a test tube, mm. you know, is, is sure, that sure. sort of mentality, a, a burger in a Petri dish. Yeah. Uh, you know, they say it's unnatural, but I don't know. There's so much, I, I think if they would look into how other types of their food was produced, um, they yeah. might be shocked at how quote unquote unnatural things are. Mm-hmm. Also the production of meat from cattle, it's not like we're going out and hunting bison on the open plains and killing it ourselves. (laughs) You know, that's like the natural thing to do. Right now, we've got a mass of cows that we then slaughter massively, and then their bodies are hung up on hooks and stripped down. You know, none of that is natural. So it's this definition of natural. There's, you know, it's not black and white. Um, And another thing that people are going to have to get past is this, you know, the uncanny valley in terms of robotics, right? Mm. So you you look at an artificial intelligence robot or um, what was it called? Mm. Sophia? Yeah. yeah, Sophia. And yep. it's this uncanny valley. It's people mm-hmm. are really comfortable with things that they can obviously tell are robots. But as you get closer and closer to looking like a human, mm. it kind of makes the brain raise its suspicions a little bit more, right? Yeah. yeah. And so if you, it, it kind of zeroes you in and, and it it biases you to only uh, only expect a certain finite uh, number of results from this situation. And when that doesn't happen, 
when the thing that you suspect is supposed to look like or supposed to behave exactly like a human actually behaves like a robot, it's kind of unsettling. And in a similar kind of way, when people see something that looks exactly like a burger, they really narrow their expectations, right? They expect it to taste and kind of have the same exact texture as a burger. And so there's this, it's going to take a little bit of marketing. And, and interestingly, Impossible Burger has been pretty successful uh, up till now. You know, they, they've, they're in Burger King. There's Burger King commercials of people coming out of the store and, and not being, <laughs> you know, being shocked that they just ate a, yeah. a lab-grown burger or a, not a lab-grown, but a basically a soy burger with some heme in it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, we're starting to move that direction. And so I'm hopeful for that sort of thing because soy does contain all of the essential amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins that we have to get from our protein sources. And, and so it's, it's a really good source. There have been some questions raised about the type of heme they use in the burger. And uh, let me back up just a little bit. So heme, hemoglobin, um, is the oxygen-carrying molecule that's found in our blood. And um, it's found in our red blood cells. And so whenever we eat a piece of meat from a normal cow or anything like that, a piece of red meat, a lot of the taste characteristics come from the inclusion of some of the blood from the animal, right? And so the way that Impossible Burger has been able to kind of take what is essentially a soy burger and make it taste like a hamburger is by including heme in the burger. So it's an iron-containing molecule that makes it taste a little bit more like blood. Now, the heme they're isolating is not from animal blood. It's from it's it's actually a soy-like hemoglobin. So it's a it's a plant heme, but um, that's that's how they're getting it to work. So um, yeah, it, it's an exciting technology, but there has been some controversy surrounding whether this leg hemoglobin that they're isolating from soy is actually safe. And I, you know, I would eat it. I think it's safe based on the science, but, uh, like everything, it's pretty controversial. Yeah. And I mean, you can make the argument that normal meat when eaten in large quantities is not necessarily safe because it leads to cardiovascular risk factor. It is a cardiovascular risk factor and can lead to cardiovascular events as well. But yeah, yeah I, especially I the red the meat. Yeah. Especially the red meat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, and another thing to bring up here with these lab grown meats, so not the impossible burger, uh, variety, but the actual ones that are taking stem cells and growing actual, you know, muscle tissue, essentially, we can get to the point sort of where we can produce a burger, right? Just this kind of messed up conglomeration of meat cells, right? But we're not, we can't produce something like a steak, right? The steak, the production of a steak, you've got a bone in some of them. You've got this distribution of fat and connective tissue that really creates the structure and cooking performance of a steak. And to do that, you know, you've got to find a way to basically have DNA direct the organization of different tissues. And when you're creating an animal, that's exactly what you get. You're, you're growing an animal from a small embryo. And over time, these tissues naturally organize to where a a muscle is in this part of the body, which is connected to a tendon, which is connected to a bone. So you get this natural organization. But if you're just trying to produce the steak as an end product, that same level of tissue organization um, is going to be really quite hard uh, to get right. Yeah. Although on that topic, I I read an article that showed that there, there is some research being done at Harvard to 
essentially develop a gelatin scaffold that mm. takes inspiration from a cotton candy machine, actually, uh, and spins very, very fast, produces this scaffold on which the stem cells can grow. So it's not as detailed a scaffold as what Evan was describing, nor is this anywhere near being brought to market. This is still in the labs uh, and, and in, in the R&D phase. But I think this is a really interesting uh, potential way to be able to produce a, a steak or a, a more well-formed, shapely uh, form of meat where you have this gelatin scaffold that is grown in a lab and then you have stem cells that grow on top of it, produce the meat, and then you can actually look at it. And it looks more like a steak. Right. And that, that basically sounds like the 3D printed organs that we talked about in our 3D printing episode, where you've got this scaffold with growth factors that direct the stem cells in different parts of this thing to mature in different ways and create different types of cells, whether it's bone or, um, you know, connective tissue, muscle, those sorts of things. That's exactly what this is. It's just collagen, uh, which forms connective tissue and then things grow off of it. So yeah, very, very similar to what we described in that, in that last episode. Yeah. So that's one source of protein. So lab grown meat or kind of imitation meat, if you will. Um, one source of potential protein that would be potentially a lot easier on the environment, like Andrew was saying. Um, I, I also want to get into fish farming. So this is f farmed fish is already huge. Most of it's Atlantic salmon, um, just because they grow quickly and are relatively disease resistant and things like that. But basically fish farming, um, you can do it on the land or in the, or in large bodies of water that already exist. And you've basically got, you start out with small fish and then mature them in large underwater cages essentially, and then farm them. Right. And th the thought is that this is really what allows for fish production now and into the future, because we're already overfishing the oceans. And so this is going to continue to be a huge source of protein for people is farmed fish. Now, moving into the future, we're, we're kind of already moving in the direction of improved sustainability with this because earlier fish farming, you had a lot of waste from the fish, um, fish brought from some areas of the world and farmed and others could bring diseases with them and kind of mess up the local ecosystems. Um, and there are some animal cruelty, um, advocates that say keeping fish in these sorts of cages isn't exactly humane. Although I would argue that, you know, a fish intelligence is a lot different than a dog yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so I, I think moving forward, it's getting a lot better. And federal waters were actually only recently opened to fish farming. Hmm. And a, as you might expect, as we get kind of economies of scale, these practices become kind of more realistic from an economical perspective. But uh, we need to ensure that regulations are in place so that we don't completely ruin ecosystems yeah. by farming fish. Yeah, I think that I think it's a great summary, and I, I'm just really intrigued by this branch of ethics that that deals with animal suffering. And truthfully, I, I just don't know that much about it. It's something uh, it just piqued my my interest as you were discussing it there. I, my my typically I think about you know the higher higher order beings are able to suffer in a deeper way than, than lower order beings, meaning fish, et cetera, those with smaller brains suffer less. Anyways, but but I agree with you. I think it's very important to, to ensure that we have regulations in place so that we're not overfishing and, and that we're using the resource that we have in, in, a, in a sustainable way. Yeah. And so kind of digging deeper into this topic, one third of all of the current 
fish catch in the world goes to feeding farmed fish. And so <laughs> no in, a, in, a, in, a, yeah, in a situation similar to what we were talking about with the cattle, it's, it's not you know, some 100% efficient process, but it is significantly more efficient than feeding cattle. So hmm. you said three to four pounds of feed go to yes, one pound yes. of beef. I actually saw a stat that it was actually five to six, so probably somewhere in that yeah, three to sure. six range. Sure. But with, a, with, with fish farming, it's kind of one pound of fish feed goes to creating one pound of fish. Huh. And so the, the way that we feed these farm fish now are, are basically these little food pellets in most cases. Atlantic salmon, for instance, which is, which is probably the biggest farmed fish crop, if you will, this aquaculture crop. In the wild, these fish are car- carnivorous, so they eat yeah. smaller fish, right? But we, that's expensive and inconvenient to feed the farmed fish real fish. Other fish yeah. So we've kind of developed these food pellets with ground up little fish, uh, an oil content for lipids, and then some carbohydrates or something like that. The thing that we need to worry about here is not all farmed fish is created equal. And so these food pellets, the oil in them is a, is a big subject unto itself. Most yeah. of the time, because these fish are carnivorous, they're eating fish oil as the source of their lipids. Hmm. But some farmers, instead of putting fish oil in the food pellets for these farmed Atlantic salmon, will put vegetable oil. And as a result, the Atlantic salmon that's harvested and shipped to grocery stores, in some cases, this is not all farms, but in some cases is a lot less healthy, right? So um, fish are kind of touted as being this super healthy, uh, they've got omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids, all these things. Yeah. But it depends on the way the fish is fed. And so if you feed the fish with lower quality oils, then the oils included in that fish, uh, when we eat it on our dinner tables, are going to be of lower quality and far less healthy. And so th- that's huh. an example of one of these regulations that from a, a health perspective, it's it's important to in some ways regulate how we're feeding these fish. Another thing that people bring up is, well, this is completely unnatural. We should not eat farmed fish. It's cruel. And it's if you look at the color of wild salmon, it's nowhere close to farm salmon. And that's just because of carotene content. So the people that say that are literally just talking about kind of the pinkness of the meat coming off the fish or the degree of saturation. And so in the wild, uh, salmon can feed on things like shrimp, things with carotene in them, essentially. So on a side note, flamingos get their color from eating shrimp. Carotene molecules give them their pink color. Carotene gives carrots their orange color. The uh, the meat color of a wild salmon is from these carotenoids. And so that the farm salmon doesn't have as many of those carotenoids. It has enough for them to survive, obviously, but um, some people are touting that as a reason to always eat wild-caught salmon. But I would argue that, uh, and it's not even an argument, it's just a fact, it's not possible for everyone to eat wild-caught salmon. We're already yeah. overfishing. Yep. And so we are absolutely going to have to rely on farmed fish. So uh, those are just some random thoughts. Yeah, and another thing to think about, I, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place with this, but... I thought those were like really interesting uh, little stories and facts, so I, I'm glad you, glad you threw it in there. Yeah, yeah, so... Another little interesting tidbit here about sea-based farming or water-based farming, this aquaculture. Aquaculture is already bigger than the cattle industry. Hmm. So we're already moving in this trajectory, which I think is a good thing. You know, fish farming is not near as bad on the environment as cattle-produced methane and all the resources that go into feeding cattle. Feeding cattle is a lot more, or raising cattle for food, is a lot more inefficient than fish farming. But some people think that fish farming isn't efficient enough. And so they're moving to muscle farming. 
Huh. And so if you think about raising a fish, you have to feed it, right? You have to give it these food pellets that I was just talking about. Some people are starting, or some companies, I should say, are starting to farm mussels. And the thing about that is they basically drop these lines in the water with um, starter mussels is what I'll call them, you know, the, the sea-based mussels. I'm yeah. not talking about muscle protein here. Right, right. They have the shells. And the good thing about that is it's pretty low maintenance, really. You drop them in the ocean and they filter feed. Huh. And so you don't have to give them food pellets or anything like that. And yeah. then over time, they grow themselves and then you take them out and you can eat the mussels for protein. And it's actually a very healthy source of protein. The yeah. thing is, most people aren't used to eating mussels. You it's know, a, I'm not very, a, a lot of it's a texture thing, but I'm not very into eating mussels, but it may very well be a food of the future because it's so efficient to produce. You don't have to mm. feed it like you would other sources of farmed fish. So I, I like mussels, the mussels that you're describing, because of kind of the novelty of it. I, I like, I enjoy mm -hmm. eating it in, in, in small quantities just because it's different and, and unique. And I'm just used to eating a lot of chicken in my diet. But if it became one of the main sources of protein in my diet, I don't know. I don't know that I would enjoy it as much, but I I'm really intrigued by that idea because it does sound so much easier to produce than, you know, feeding fish and all, all of the other things that are involved in, in the production of, of fish, even in, in farmed fish. Now, had you mentioned, do these mussels that they're growing, do they have a shell around them, which would make it a little bit more difficult to, to harvest them? Or are, is it just the mussel itself that, that's being grown? No, no, no. It's in terms of the animal, whenever we refer to mussels, it's kind of this shell around it, right? It's yeah. kind of like a clam or an oyster looking right, thing, right. right? So it's it's an actual mussel. It's a yeah, full, the thing. full thing. You know, it's just a normal animal muscle. <laughs> Not gotcha. being very articulate there, but <laughs> a full uh, animal it, it is the full you. thing with the shell. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super cool. I, you know, th that, that's just like really intriguing to me. And I, I think I'll have to, what, what we, what I should do. And here's, here's the homework for our listeners. Try to make a meal, invite some folks over that is only uh, sustainably sourced or like very uh, unique foods that would be sustainable in the future. So serve only insects, mussels, um, <laughs> you know, you know farm fish or whatever, soy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that'd be really, a really intriguing, uh, homework assignment for our listeners. And I, I'll try to do it myself as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we kind of joke about it, but that is the way yeah. of the future. Yeah. We've got to, none of this stuff is ever going to happen because it's forced upon us. What's, what's a lot more likely is that people's dietary shifts will change because they value sustainably sourced foods that are not hard on the environment. Yeah. And as a result of that market pressure, it draws more and more people into these sorts of farms away from cattle farming and yeah. palm oil plantations and these sorts of things. So it's in a lot of cases, it's the buying behavior that's got to change first. Yeah. And so we joke about it, but honestly, I I'm kind of starting to shift my diet. I've, huh. I haven't had beef in probably a couple of months. Yeah. Honestly, I've, I've been eating a lot more fish. I've been eating a lot more soy. I've recently started eating tofu, which I never thought wow. I would do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got to take the initiative, right? If you yeah. want to see things change, the way to do that is with your dollars. Yeah, well said. Well said. It's been a long time since I've eaten beef as well, though I haven't made as drastic a change as you. I've, I focus primarily on if I'm getting my protein, I get it from chicken and, and turkey. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I can take steps even further. And, and 
it's not like this has to happen overnight, right? It, you can right. take w- one little step at a time to kind of slowly change your diet and, and change your behavior um, such that it becomes just a normal part of your life and it's not a, as much of an inconvenience. But but I do like the idea that we can kind of shape markets by how we purchase things. And we've we've talked about that in the past uh, when it comes to tech companies in, in Silicon Valley. Like we, we can shift the way that these companies use our data, et cetera, by choosing different products that value privacy, et cetera. So I, I think this is a, a common thread through some of our, our, our podcasts here. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, a lot of these, these new technologies on the, on the scale of a technology that would alter the climate in a positive direction are kind of, they've almost got to be supported by government in a lot mm-hmm, of cases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of the funding necessary. The government yeah. has to say, okay, anything that produces a bunch of carbon, we're gonna tax that more heavily, we're gonna give tax breaks to these sorts of companies here. And so they've got to stimulate, uh, they've got to reward good activities and punish bad activities, right? Yeah. And and the only way that's going to happen is if public opinion shifts. Because mm. the government is just a, it's just a response to public opinion. These politicians that we elect, they want to stay in their positions of power. They want to stay elected. And they realize that if they're going to win re-election, they have to align their interests with that of the public opinion. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rare these days to find a politician that has kind of inbuilt values and sticks to them, right? <laughs> their values, the values of politicians are very malleable according yeah. to the public opinion. Yeah. And so if it, it, I think this is just a general concept in all of society. If we want things to shift in a positive direction, it starts with having an understanding ourselves uh, of what needs to change and how it needs to change, altering our own behavior, educating our friends in a logical fashion. I think I, I, I don't like the current outrage culture where sure. everyone gets emotional and, and sure. riots and protests and all this stuff. I think it needs to be approached more logically and say, okay, here's the problem. Here is the logical path forward. Right. And it starts with the individual and then educating those around you and this sort of natural spread of ideas. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think a lot of this can happen kind of in a, in a grassroots way, as you're describing. I think, yes, using using logic, using education, influencing the people in your your mm-hmm. sphere of influence is is a is one way to, to do this. Because in addition to just pure education, facts, et cetera, there are also just assumptions about how the world works that are not necessarily grounded in logic that we all hold to, the things that we, we can't necessarily prove, but they shape our worldview, they shape how we, how we see things and, and how we make decisions. And I think the, one of the, the, the best ways to, to reshape those assumptions is by um, doing that in the context of the people that you know and you know well and can kind of uh, reveal those assumptions to them and then help them move toward a, a different set of assumptions. And um, so anyways, I, I think that's just an interesting, um, as we talk about how, how do you change society in general? I think, Evan, you mentioned some of the top-down stuff. There needs to be regulatory changes, but there's nothing that's either just top-down or bottom-up. They're all kind of interrelated. And you know, mm-hmm. whether, whether you're in, listener, whether you're in public office or whether you have a small circle of influence among your colleagues, friends, et cetera. Um, I think we need to be attacking this from, from both ends. So anyways, I kind of enjoyed that, that little tangent. I think it's helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so here we're talking about shifting our diet, our, our perceptions of our diet in order to one, be more healthy and two be more helpful to the climate. 
and ensure a sustainable production of food for a growing population. And so we've talked about lab-grown meat as an alternative to protein. We've talked about fish farming and mussel farming as an alternative to protein that are both more sustainable than the current methods of protein production. Another one I want to talk about is algae. So at one point, you know, ExxonMobil had it on their commercials as biofuels, and that's kind of fizzled out to some extent. You know, it's not as popular as it once was, but algae as food is actually gaining in popularity. And so algae, of course, is just a little tiny plant. That's what gives it its kind of green, blue-green color is the chlorophyll in it that allows these miniature plants to go into or go through photosynthesis to provide energy. And the interesting thing about algae is that it uh, it has all of the essential amino acids. It's kind of like soy in that way. It's got all of the essential building blocks of proteins that we need. So if you could find a way to just exist on algae, I suppose you could do it. <laughs> um, but the the good things, a few good things about algae. One is that it's you can kind of harvest it constantly. So in a lot of other crops, you grow it and then harvest it once a year. And then if you have one year of bad crops, you're kind of there's a shortage mm-hmm, that year, mm-hmm. right? And so the thing about algae is that it continuously circulates in these pools that, that um, they basically just look like little racetracks, but for water, shallow water and algae just grows in it. And you can kind of harvest, it grows and then you harvest it every two to three weeks. And so obviously that's a huge benefit is being able to constantly harvest this algae every two to three weeks as a protein yeah. source. Another thing is that algae can grow in salt water. Okay, so yeah. here's an interesting stat for you. 70% of all of our fresh water goes to crops and livestock. Wow. Huh. And so, you know, I think our next episode might be on water because this is a whole issue into itself. But yeah. people are talking about water shortages. Well, so much of our fresh water goes to raising food. And so if we can get to yeah. a point where we are relying on foods that require a lot less fresh water usage, then we can save that fresh water for actual drinking. Yeah. yeah. And so algae is good for this because you can raise it in salt water. Hmm. And kind of in that same vein, it's estimated, some estimates say it's seven times more efficient to produce algae protein per calorie than it is soy protein per calorie. Huh. The problem here, of course, is that algae is a hard sell, right? I've never actually yeah. eaten algae. Yeah. I've never... Not to my knowledge, right? It's a great source of protein. It contains all of our amino acids, but it's not popular enough yet to have have recipes with algae on Pinterest. I wouldn't even know how to go out and buy (laughs) algae if I wanted to right now. And and that's the thing. I was just thinking about this. I was thinking of adding algae to the menu for this dinner that I'm going to prepare with sustainable foods, which includes insects, et cetera, soy, things like that. I just don't know where I can get algae. The closest thing that I've eaten would be like seaweed and stuff. That's not, that's more like a plant. I man, I, I don't know where I Algae's would. Algae's a plant too, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but as far as I, I have, I just have never seen this sold in any market that I've been to, but we'll have to, I have to look it up. Listener, if you have any suggestions for where you can purchase some algae, uh, to eat, please let us know. Actually, now that you're talking about the algae-based menu, there is a company called IWI Iwi or Iwi or something, and I think you can buy algae cookies from them. So it's it's basically like a sugar cookie with super high amounts of protein, I believe. And uh, maybe I'll try those. I, b- I bet they're super expensive. Here, let me look up how much these cookies are. They can be the dessert for this this meal that I'm preparing. Hold on, Iwi. 
can you hear my mechanical keyboard? I can. Sounds great. IWI, I, uh, algae-based. Oh, they have prenatal stuff too. Oh, they've got soft gel capsules. I need to type in. So right now I'm just seeing soft gel capsules. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to get people to just eat algae capsules. Dude, but anyway. It, there are days when if I could just swallow a pill that had all of my nutrients, that that would be fantastic. Anyways, that, that's a little bit off topic, but... Just well, for those I, days you know, when, I, Soylent. You remember when I was on the Soylent oh, kick, Oh, I remember right? the Soylent kick. Absolutely. This was like three, four years ago. Yeah. Um, I still have some, but nice. I think they're, I mean, obviously all of their protein is from soy. Yeah. And I believe that their lipids were from algae-based oh, lipids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I think I remember reading that on the packaging. I actually ordered some Soylent and it's very tasty. It just didn't fill me up quite the way that I had hoped. Anywho. All right, back on topic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about lab-grown meat. We've talked about farm fish. We've talked about algae. One of the other things that I had only very briefly looked into that I think is actually going to be fairly significant is genetic modifications of crops and food sources. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, And for thousands of years, folks have been splicing together different plants and helping to produce more efficient crops, crops that are produce more nutrient per square acre and and just produce better looking plants and, and plants that taste better, et cetera. I'm sure many of you have seen online pictures of corn that was grown in the 1700s, 1600s, and how few kernels there were. I mean, on each head of corn, is it as a head of corn, a stalk of corn? Anyways, there was maybe five or six. Ear? Isn't it an ear? It is, it is an ear of corn. It is an ear of corn. On, on each ear of corn, there were maybe five or six of those little yellow kernels. And then compare that to the corn that we're used to eating now, and there's I don't know, probably hundreds of these little kernels. So the nutritional density, caloric density has been greatly increased through this these artificial um, splicing and farming uh, methods. So now o- over the last decade, we have this new technology called CRISPR, which I'm, I'm again, sure that many of you ha- have heard of. CRISPR is, CRISPR is a, a system that allows for DNA splicing. So it can go in and on the, at the level of DNA, cut at a predetermined location to alter the genetic makeup of, of an organism. Certainly folks have tried to use this in the development of designer babies. And recently uh, there's some folks in China who were jailed for using CRISPR to modify children before they were, were, they they were born. Were they jailed? They, I did not know they, they were, were put in jail and they were fined, I think, $400,000, something like that. Um, wow. Maybe up to a million. Anyways, very, very interesting story. Go ahead and look it up. So now getting back on track, very, very important to think about different ways that we can use CRISPR, not just for altering humans, but also for altering plants to make them have characteristics and features that that we desire. So CRISPR is great at cutting DNA exactly where you want it to be cut. CRISPR is not very good so far at inserting strands of DNA or genetic code into, into a plant. So the way that CRISPR is being used currently to genetically alter plants is by systematically knocking out genes to identify which genes are associated with which feature in that plant. Let's say we want a plant that is resistant to fungi, right? Studies have been undertaken to knock out systematically these different genes to reveal which one of those genes is responsible for the antifungal component in in that plant. And once you identify which gene that is, you can then ensure that you add that to another another plant. Now, again, because I said that CRISPR is not very good at adding genes, the way that that is accomplished is by inducing random mutations in that specific gene uh, and, and then producing a ton of plants with those random mutations 
And then over time, you're able to select one of those plants that has the desired mutation, and then that becomes the, the founder of a, a new population of, of plant. So this would allow for plants to grow in extreme environments. So if you take a, a plant that is now able to grow in extreme environment, perhaps an environment where there's droughts or crazy amounts of flooding, you can take some of those characteristics and put them into another plant that you would desire to have that, that same characteristics. Absolutely. So it would essentially be more environmentally friendly and, and improve yield by allowing plants to grow in environments where they wouldn't have normally grown or just make them better at growing in general. Right. Uh, maybe a higher yield, like you mentioned with the ears of corn, higher calories per plant. And it, you know that increases the calories per acre, if you will thereby right. increasing efficiency. Right, right. And sort of in that same vein, I'd like to, to move on to, we've been talking a lot about protein sources because that has been the thing that, you know, if we can figure out how to responsibly provide enough protein for humanity, the grains and the lipids, you know, are, are less of a priority. The lipids can kind of, in a lot of cases, accompany the protein sources uh, in a sufficient amount. So we've been focusing on protein, but growing these other sorts of more traditional crops, uh, vegetables, those sorts of things is still super important, especially because of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, some lipids, of course. So in this realm of more traditional crops, what is the way of the future? Uh, I think overall, uh, toward the beginning of this podcast, we mentioned the word efficiency. And I think that that is basically the way of the future in these sorts of crops. So right now, a lot of our farming is essentially open field farming, right? We've got this giant mass of land and let's say we're growing corn on it or I don't know, tomatoes. It turns out open field farming is pretty inefficient. And so how do we make it more efficient? As I was doing research on this topic, one of the things that kept coming up or one of the countries that kept coming up is the Netherlands. And they're actually the number two exporter of crops now. They really? lead, uh, yeah, they lead production in, I think, chilies, peppers, maybe tomatoes, but it's, it, they've had this nice collaboration between the government and industry as a result of public opinion shift, essentially kind of getting to the same thing that we were talking about. Nothing on this scale happens. You, you know, it's, it, it's hard to make a country with a population of 17 million people number two in the world in terms of crop exportation. Yeah, the but they've done it because big. it's been prioritized, right? It's prioritized at the level of the government and industry. And so the incentives are aligned. So anyway, they were able to vastly increase the yield of uh, the example I saw was tomatoes. And so in an open field situation, we get four kilograms per meter squared in terms of a, a yearly yield from tomatoes. But with their high-tech greenhouses that are kind of able to adapt and adjust the conditions perfectly, they were able to get not four per meter squared, but 80 kilograms per meter wow. squared. Wow. And they did it with 25% of the normal amount of water. Huh. And so this That's is the wild. level of efficiency that I'm hoping that we will continue to produce. So the Netherlands, like I mentioned, has a population of 17.1 million people and they were able to achieve this level of efficiency. We have a population of 327 million people. And with that, of course, comes a more maybe complex society, uh, but it also comes with a lot more resources. So we have a lot more money to invest in these sorts of technologies if we can get the incentives aligned, if we can get everybody on the same page. And, and this sort of higher yield with much less resources is definitely the direction of the future. 
some of the other technologies they were using in these greenhouses are super interesting. So another thing that, that is really dangerous to crops is insects. And so moths can, can come through and eat up a lot of the crops before they're able to grow. And so they, they have drones that fly around and detect the moths. Yeah. And then they kill the moths by flying into them. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah. So they literally take the wings of the drones and kill the moths, just like <laughs> chopping them up. So that was interesting. Yeah. They, they constantly adapt to different kind of hues of LED lights. They have an AI system for being able to predict, uh, being able to see what's going on with the crops and kind of constantly adjusting the conditions to improve the growth. Um, and so overall, it's just a lot of technologies that are in use in other areas that they've been able to use to increase the efficiency of crops. And it, it's super exciting. Absolutely. I think, I think those are some fantastic ideas. And, and I, I have a few to add. Weather forecasting sounds kind of boring, but 90% of crop losses, uh, from what I read, are due to weather events. And so if we're able to mm. predict these weather events, we can protect crops. One, one of the ways that, that this has been done already is by adding a ton of sensors to fields to enable micro forecasting. So adding things to sense humidity, adding barometers, adding temperature sensors, all this stuff, and then feeding that into AI algorithms can help to predict weather more accurately, even in local areas of a particular farm. Another thing that has become uh, popular is this idea of precision farming. If, if you see those big pieces of machinery that are kind of going around farming fields, spraying the crops with different fertilizers and uh, nutrients and, and water, w- one of the things that has been very helpful in producing more efficient farming methods is enabling GPS control of those systems so that there is less overlap of of where the water and and nutrients are being spread. So if those machines are under the control or at least under some guidance from from GPS, you're not spraying the same crops as often with duplicate amounts of fertilizer. And this this can reduce fertilizer use, reduce water use, again, making things far more efficient. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's pretty much all I wanted to cover in this episode. I think we've we've given people a smattering of information about the general approach to producing food in the future. This direction toward, like in all things, toward more efficiency, but also directing people to different sources of food that inherently lend themselves to being more environmentally friendly, more efficient per calorie, more uh, scalable in terms of feeding a continuously growing population. And and I think that overall, that's the direction of the future. Yeah, I, I think that was a really fascinating episode. I, I learned a lot uh, through our conversation, and um, I I, uh, I think there will be some follow-up episodes on this one, specifically about water, because we, we haven't even touched on that. There's, there's going to be some other exciting stuff, I think, that we'll dive into uh, on this topic, and I, I enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. And with that, we will end. Thanks for listening to this episode of Only Tech Will Tell. As always, we invite you to subscribe and rate us and share us with your friends. We'll see you in the next one.